Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, I love these kind of interviews. Um, I'm geared up for this one because when I get to speak to someone who has just left the superintendency, I feel like I get sort of an inside track on everything that's going on in what I would deem as the essential leadership position in public education across the United States, influencing every decision that you and I as parents recognize in our kids and our local teachers on a day-to-day basis. So I'm excited to spend some time today with Addison Davis. Those that don't know, outside of Florida, uh, he just resigned his post from Hillsborough County Public Schools in the Tampa area, which is the seventh largest district with basically almost a quarter of a million students. Um, and growing each and every day. And and Addison, before we jump into our conversation here, I'm going to sort yes, of do the uh, the proverbial rundown of a really impressive resume that would <laughs> might make you blush, but your your family will would would be smiling at. And just to give the audience uh, some yes, some understanding yes, of your background, so and we're going to talk about this right out of the gate. But you were at Hillsborough starting in March of 2020. It's a very unique time to start something. So I'll give you sort of an inside track of my first question. Um, prior to Hillsborough, but I should say to Hillsborough, I mean, incredibly dramatic changes uh, during a very turbulent time, not just in Hillsborough, but of course, across the world. Um, historically, DNF schools in Hillsborough, there were 28. Uh, Addison and his team reduced that all the way down to five over a 39-month tenure. Uh, prior to Hillsboro, he was at Clay County Public Schools. Same kind of a thing. He took statewide academic ra- rankings from 20th to 7th. He also saw, oversaw a notable increase in the graduation rate from 84% to 93%, narrowing the, narrowing the achievement gap in the process. And prior to that, he was with Duval County Schools. And this is really where he he got he you know cut his teeth in education. Everything from being an educator, he was there for 18 years, an educator in the classroom, an assistant principal, principal, executive director of turnaround, middle school cluster chief, and then region superintendent. He's a part of a number of boards. He is dedicated to his community. Uh, he's a native of Northeast Florida and holds a master's degree in educational leadership from Jacksonville University. Addison, great to meet you. And we're talking today because you have decided to take a new post with the Strategus Group. Um, and, you know, I know that you will talk a little bit about Adam Geary, the managing, managing director and the relationship that you've had with him for a number of years. But this really is an opportunity, I would imagine, for you to spread your wings and incorporate all the different lessons from the classroom through the leadership positions and understanding vendor relationships, the politics, right? The dirty word of politics in education, <laughs> which for whatever reason, some people I think are still Pollyanna thinking that <laughs> doesn't happen, but it is, it is big. every day. It does every day. Right. So let's start here, Addison. So <laughs> March, 2020, uh, I was in Florida actually on my spring break. I'm I'm here in Nashville, and I remember when the when the basically the world fell March 12th or 13th. Um, tell me about the decision. Obviously, what an incredible post to secure at Hillsborough, seventh largest in the country. But talk to me about the decision making process for you and your family at that point in time. Um, given, I mean, I, we didn't know it was going to happen, but my goodness, what a time to start a new position. Yes, sir. And first and foremost, thank you for having me, Doc. I really appreciate it. Um, love to get a chance to talk to you. Every chance to get to talk about education, I'm always in. It's so rewarding, such a rewarding profession to be able to do it. And you talked about, you know, my impact or in three school districts. And that's only because of the strong teams that I've had. And you're only as good as your next hire. 
So many thanks to all of our, our teachers, support professionals, our school-based leaders, district leaders, uh, educational advocates, faith-based partners, school board members who all, and students and families who all have taken, uh, you know, education seriously and, and really try to create the best experience possible. But, you know, transitioning from Clay, you know, I had many offers to go be a superintendent across the state of Florida. One of the, and as I was dabbling in other school districts, I'll leave those unnamed, you know, Hillsborough County came open and, you know, so many leaders across the nation and big leaders in, across the state of Florida said, you know what, don't do it. This is a place that it openly is one of the hardest educational locations to but be they able told to. told you don't do it. Don't do it to drive they, it because. Was it because they wanted the post? <laughs> no, it's because they had the most persistently Addison, low performing. come on, don't take it. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, it's, it's the most persistently low performing schools. It, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, turmoil historically about superintendents and boards. And they're like, don't do it. And you know what? When when individuals that I respect tell me that, it just only you know made me gravitate toward going to Hillsborough County and doing what I do best. Because Hillsborough County at the time in March, when I signed in January of 2020, it really needed a systems thinker and it really needed an instructional leader. And that's who I am to bring stability, systems, processes, and accountability. And um, so I decided to do it. And, you know, I signed the contract in January 2020. I didn't read the asterisk that my first week would be COVID. So, you know, I, as I got into it, not only the first week COVID, and we had to shut down 250 schools and 230,000 students and 25,000 employees. And we were building the airplane while it was in the air from an instructional perspective, from an evaluation perspective, from a student service clientele perspective. How do we serve children from a uh, essential perspective of food, resources, wraparound services? But two months later, I found ourselves $150 million in debt, and I had to cut 1,500 position and people in the organization. And when you're an outsider leading behind a screen for the first eight months, you know what? It creates disruption. And oh, that's um, not a press release that's going to feel warm in your heart, right? <laughs> it, it, it definitely isn't. And, uh, you know, you get people start questioning, you know, does he truly value education? When you're driving a $4.3 billion organization, you've got to make certain that you are fiscally responsible and that you are leading it in a manner from a business perspective. And that's what we did. We made some hard decisions, but I'm glad it was me because I was the first outsider in 50 years. And an insider may not have been able to make those tough decisions to be able to get our financial alignment and follow a, a financial recovery plan. At the same token, drive the most ambitious strategies, instructional strategies we can to be able to lift instruction. I learned tremendously during that process. It was hard, but you know what? We got a chance to, to do some cool things. So, so let's let's dive in right there because what I think is really interesting, you know, professional development. When we think about it in education, it is an educator focused you know, side of the side of the coin that that's what we're always thinking sure. about. But there's a professional development for the leadership, both in the schools at the district, right? And <clears throat> across the state, you were dropped into a very unique position, like many superintendents during COVID. Share with me sort of your previous training and did it prepare? You can't prepare for <laughs> I get that. But to be able to you know, it's like the reality. We hear college students say, well, when I got out, you know, I I, I knew some things in theory, but the practice or yes. the application of that theory was the real challenge. And so did you feel prepared? Because I think one of the, you know, it, the pundits will say, well, maybe we don't do a very good job of providing enough professional development for educators so that they can understand the breadth and depth of the industry in general, yeah. meaning maybe there's an opportunity when 
I saw a report in Hillsborough that they're dealing with, you know, a, a shortage of over a thousand teachers, right? Before That's we start right. the school year. And so you start to wonder, you know, is there a way where we can build structures so that maybe a teacher is there for five years and then goes off to the private sector for two years, but has a pathway back and the students are better for that. The teacher is now just recharged. And so I'm just wondering, I'm using that as a bit of a backdrop, but can we extrapolate that out to the leadership and the professional development that superintendents are getting, that it is sound, that it is deep in these very difficult challenges and decisions that you have to make when you were running a district in the top 10 in the country, were you yes. adequately prepared in those moments or did you kind of have to go with your gut? You know, sir, you know, we, we're all, you know, you look at the state of superintendents across Florida, but also across the nation, you know, we, we the turnover is so great. And that's just because not only the complexities that we're facing to be able to move the needle with student performance, but also looking at and dealing with social and cultural wars every single day. I, I do believe that, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to work with some very high level leaders and Nikolai Vidi, who is currently the superintendent of Detroit uh, Public School District, um, came from Miami under Car Alberto Carvalho, was the number two there, transitioned to Duval County as a superintendent and I was his chief of schools. Um, you know, he taught me tremendously about systems, processes, uh, community engagement, board engagement, how to be able to be very uh, strategic and surgical about triangulating data and making an informing the instructional process, prescribing work for students, then also being able to look at talent management and realize you're only as good as your next hire. I took those same systems and transitioned it to Clay Height, to Clay School District, and then being able to go to Hillsborough County. So I was blessed to be able to be exposed to, you know, a high level work because let's be honest. You know, we look at the top 10, they're, they're somewhat years away, you know, in front of mid-sized school districts and uh, for the most part, the top four or five. And Alberto in Miami was my mentor as well, Alberto Carvalho, who now is in LA Unified. And I've had a chance to lean on both of them to identify what's working, what's not, and what we can do differently in the educational field. But I think it's just time on task. I, I was prepared to go in and make changes from a organizational structural perspective to make changes financially to make changes from a recruit and retain perspective the issue is i didn't plan for covid i didn't plan for a pandemic and you know when we closed down our schools our our student interaction you know uh, you know software crashed you know the first week espy we couldn't even assign content and we had to go back and go out and i brought canvas in which collegiate the college students use every single day and so we didn't plan for those elements. We didn't plan for students who didn't have the connectivity or the devices to be able to remote learn. We didn't plan for simultaneous teaching. We didn't plan for, you know, students to be actively, you know, trying to find students to attend every single day while they were out. And I think that from that, you just had to learn why you were on the job to get better every single day and have a staircase approach to effectiveness. I also didn't plan to be $150 million in debt. And uh, with that process coming in, while we have, you know, I, I always related us to looking at the big seven in the state of Florida. We, when I looked at Broward County and uh, Broward County is the third largest school district in, you know, in this, in the state, one of the, you know, top, you know, six or top five in the nation, they have 30,000 more students than we had in Hillsborough County, but we had the same number of employees. So we had to make hard decisions in that process. So, I think every day that we got into and pulled this onion back, the more you know that we had to be able to adjust. But you know what? We were unapologetic about the changes because they were about systems. They were about protecting the organizations. We didn't have state takeover. 
Well, they also make certain that we put the, you know, the right content solutions for tier one, tier two, and tier three instruction in place to serve children every single day. And I think that as we talk about a pipeline of, of you know, primed and ready professionals, you know, theory-based, as you said, is that gives you kind of some content knowledge to be able to be dangerous, but nothing is more practical than actually having on-the-job experiences and realizing you can't do this in isolation. You got to lean on other superintendents and other individuals that have been through this process to be able to learn and grow and to, to do some cool things for children. Let's talk about it. Let's use startups as an analogy. So I think what's fascinating, and we're a world of entrepreneurs, um, and I interview a lot of entrepreneurs, and just looking at the data around young people, and they're not going to be like you and me, gray-haired guys, right? They're, they're thinking, yeah, right. How many, how many, right, how many uh, businesses they'll be starting and or participating in over their lifetime? If that's the backdrop, you know, a lot of times an entrepreneur will start based on a passion that they have, a skill that they feel that they have the capacity to really make a difference and and grow in. If we then port that over to, to your your career and and careers like yours, which is you started in the classroom, how do you how do you maintain that initial drive? Because you're human, we're all human in this, and we we gain information over time. We have experiences, good, bad, and indifferent. How do you keep sort of the the crux, the soul of a teacher throughout a journey taking you to the superintendency and how valuable, because there are like my local school district, the superintendent has no teaching and learning background. And so, and I've seen this where, you know, I don't know if the pendulum swings and we make these decisions based on yeah. it's hard to fill the seat and or people that are or are not interested anymore in the role because of the challenges, but how well. do you keep that initial flame of being an educator sort of inside you in a way that is productive, even if you have to make tough decisions. Yeah. You know what? That is a, for, for us in, well, for me personally, there's just this war to do some really great things for children that lives inside of me every single day. And one thing that, I, that we never can forget is where we came from. And that's called the four walls we call our classrooms and understanding the impact that educators and teachers have had on students I mean, everyone in this country has been positively impacted by an educator. And we never forget those individuals that have changed our life, that have been a problem solver for us, that, is, that have nurtured us to be successful or helped us, you know, get across a, a barrier or a, you know, a, a hurdle that we may not have been able to, to psychologically do. Um, so for me, as, you know, moving up from, you know, impacting children to impacting and building the capacity of adults and students, Never forget that the classroom is where we started. And every day I protected my calendar from 7.30 in the morning for most, you know, to noon for the, for the majority of, you know, of the, the, of the week. I was in classrooms and that's where that satisfaction allowed me to understand what we're asking teachers to do, what they're going through every single day. Are we maximizing moments of learning? Are our curriculums really pushing the cognitive demands of our learners? Do we see that teachers are facilitating the learning? Do we have ongoing support mechanisms, not only for, for our students, but for teachers as well? And are our leaders demonstrating and leading by examples by being in classrooms to be able to take on small group instruction you know, with, our, with, the, with a cohort of learners? Are they there to be able to focus on our students critically thinking every single day and what's working, what's not, and what we can do differently? And I think that that me being in classrooms, I also stood up a stack, which is a, uh, you know, a, a school, which is a student or a teacher advisor, a superintendent teacher advisory council 
that I had individuals apply for. And we had so many applications that I reviewed personally and interviewed individuals to meet with them on a monthly basis to just stay relevant about what we can do to change and stay innovative. And I think the innovation part allows me, al allowed me just to keep that fire and, and to teach in the lead with my hair on fire every single day. And that's all I ask teachers to do. And, and I wanted to model that process, that, that process every day. And I wanted to teach every school and every classroom as if Madison and Caitlin, my two daughters were in front of that teacher and we're interacting with that community every single day. And that was the standard. So for me, it was easy, you know, we, but we got to keep that, that love in front of every one of our leaders because right now it's a, it's an exhausting, you just said it a minute ago, not many, the, those individuals who want the two superintendent role right now, the majority of them aren't ready for the role. Those who can do the role and proven competence don't want the role. So how do we find that in, you know, that space in the middle and we've got to get a, uh, an opportunity to breathe and let our hair down and get greater supports from legislators, from uh, governmental officials, from school board members, and for, for from parents. And let them know we're all on the same team, we're all in the same boat. We understand that, that education is the foundation of everything. But right now, it's just openly, it's just so fragmented. And we've got to get back in the, you know, working in collaboration. It's definitely a fragile environment. I want to talk about your relationship to criticism and and maybe what you deem failure or let's say less than a win but in the context of you know i think for years for generations if there was a challenge in a local school or a classroom i mean these things could be sort of insulated we could sort of you know create you know four walls of of security and safety to have a conversation that would help to support whatever need we might have for that child or that class or something that's happened at a school, those times are long gone, right? And so right. we have parents now that that feel that they have the freedom to talk about all things, um, right. said and unsaid to their teachers. And it's really changing the way in which I think educators and uh, building level leaders are interfacing uh, with folks. And they're dealing with more criticism overtly. There's no sort of passive aggressive. I mean, they're just, it's sort of face-to-face -face experience yes, or, or over Zoom. And I wonder what we can glean from someone who's been in the trenches like yourself when it comes to the relationship, the arc of the relationship that you've had with criticism. Um, because, you know, look, a district that is, you know, it makes you wonder about the threshold of how many students are too many for a district because you really can't make people happy. And if you've got 225 <laughs> or 230,000 students, there's no way you're going to make anybody happy. And so right. criticism is a part of, it's baked into, right. the, into the cake. Tell me about your relationship to it. At what point did you, could you still go to sleep understanding that you just got sort of inundated with critical statements, emails, phone calls, and still operate? Because that to me is the thing that you can't teach in a classroom to those yes, in colleges of education. But that kind of experience and wisdom gained is the kind of thing that can maybe, maybe there's a teacher out there that listens to you and I chatting and says, you know, maybe I should think about a path that gets me under the superintendency in the next decade because of these kinds of lessons. Yes, sir. And you know what, in, what you just described is, is, is called leadership. In, in leadership, we're never going to make everyone happy. No decision that we make, especially in the last three years or four years, you're always going to have a 50-50 split potentially. And as leaders, the biggest thing is, is making certain that we do our our analytical research, we do, we survey, we engage, actively engage with board members, practitioners, community members, students, families, educational advocates, 
and really do our due diligence to identify what our community can take and what they cannot take. And, you know, however, always keeping decisions, you know, for twofold. One, on the best interests of students is going to help them elevate their experiences inside and outside of the classrooms and allow them to become full option graduates. And that's preparing them for the workforce, preparing them for the post-secondary education, or prepare them for military. And at the same token, protecting the working conditions of, of adults. And with those two being in the foundation of what we're trying to accomplish, you have to lead in, in a space that you're not going to be job scared, but you're going to work every single day to help children unlock their full potential. Criticism is going to come. It is going to come frequent. It's a waterfall because you know what? It's easy for people, especially when you look at social media platforms. This is why I personally don't do social media to give my emotional energy because people can say things and not have that face-to-face -face conversation. However, you're going to have face-to-face -face uh, criticisms. You're going to get critiqued every single day. The biggest thing is embrace it, accept it, filter it, and understand what you can use in an effort to have in a continuous improvement mindset to get better. And I welcome it because it, it, it criticism has hardened me, it's protected me, but it also has given me an opportunity to kind of reel back, step back, and, and not just run through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. And I used that analogy back in the day where you used to, you know. Oh, yeah. Not, you, know, you can date yourself. I'm right there. There you go. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, busting through the wall and, and oh, not yeah. worried about what you did. But you know what? Being able to be very methodical in your approach, very calculated in your approach. Was that, the biggest, was that the biggest learning lesson for you was switching from the classroom to leader? Was that in that transition? Was that the biggest? Is that, that was the biggest thing, you know, is not only just, you know, now we were dealing with parents and, and students, but now dealing with every other aspect of the, you know, operations, transportations, food, nutrition, hiring, federal funding, um, you name it, the uh, curriculum instruction, support mechanisms. Stimulus uh, overload, uh, right? It, it, it's just coming at you from every perspective. The biggest thing is you can do is, is you know, is understand every facet learn from the team and be and hire the the smartest people who are the greatest loyalists that you can identify that want to be champions for children every single day and do the work collectively and not in isolation i think that's the biggest thing yeah. is knowing because me i want to do it all i want to do it myself i you know for but you got to rely on distributed leadership hire a team let that team go to work and, and trust into them let's let's transition to strategus and and the role yeah. now where your seat at sort of the proverbial conference room table has shifted a bit. I think it's incredibly valuable because as we see, you know, people monitoring the investment that is or is not coming into ed tech and education, you know, one of the things when I think about in Addison Davis, I think that one of the probably most valuable skills that someone like you can bring is the, the brokering, the conversation, the education about the way in which money flows, the way in which implementation is impacted, votes, thresholds, because, you know, for all the interviewing I've done, whenever I've, you know, that those moments that kind of create a pause in me is if I'm at a, a notable conference speaking to a young entrepreneur in the ed tech space, and they're telling me off record or off camera, I don't know if I want to stick around in education because the red tape is so much more than if I take this application to even healthcare, which that says something. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, I always think we need more, we need more of you in a space that says these, are, this is all about public private partnerships. That's really what we're talking about. These are yes, about sir. relationships, understanding where the value lies, and then creating 
a solid enough sort of communication channel so that as the needs change from a district to the vendor, that the vendor is prepared, the vendor has the talent to be able to iterate over time. Because the, <laughs> I remember working internally with tech companies over a decade ago in education, and there was this internal, like, you know, they, these freak out moments where districts would assume that if they purchased this, you know, product A, that product A was done. It was like yeah. the old classic book. You stick it on the shelf. It will never need to change. Have an right. silver bullet. Silver <laughs> bullet, right? And you go, that's not how life works. And that's thankfully, right. we're at a point where districts understand, states and districts understand that technology, it evolves. Every day okay. it's changing. Absolutely, and so sir. you really kind of have a, get a great relationship with a vendor and then, you know, be in partnership with them. And maybe the key word is partnership. So talk about sort of this shift. It's a subtle shift, but it's a shift that, comes with an incredible amount of information and, and history for you to be able to educate a prospective client and collaborator that you might have at Strategus and the districts that are looking for answers. I think it's really vital, this, this connection. Yes, sir. And, you know, first and foremost, when I decided it's time for me to go back home to Northeast Florida, and, you know, it's hard for me to, one of the hardest decisions ever to, to make was walk away from Hillsborough because we have work to do. We still have work to do, right? And I think about it every single day, but you know, in that process, you know, when I closed my uh, journey, you know, I was, you know, I was uh, approached by many corporations, many companies to be able to, to, to work with and do some cool things in education. But the one that I've, you know, had many years of relationship with was the Stratagus Group. And, and to look at, you know, the suite of, you know, engineers that they have related to, you know, White House appointees, to state superintendents, to some of the greatest legislators, um, also, you know, business leaders that are continue to advise Fortune 500 companies and other equity uh, companies. It, it was just a no-brainer. And, and this is, you know, for, for me to see a suite of engineers that can go and do some really great things for children. I just want to be a part of it. And when you look at trying to, you know, bring that to fruition and bring it on a school superintendent that is navigated through all the, the funding mechanisms that's navigated through the decision-making of agenda items and, and really look to be able to unpack analytics to identify what our immediate needs are at school districts and identify solutions that match, you know what, it's just a, a perfect fit. So for me to be able to work with companies and school districts to identify, you know, what their needs are, what their scope and sequence are, and to be able to fill those, it's it, it's really, uh, you know, for me, it's it's exciting because not only do I get a chance to impact 230,000 plus kids, but now I get to impact millions of kids in so many school districts and really help superintendents be very intentional about what solutions they bring in, those that are research-based proven to be able to move the needle for student outcomes. Let's talk about vulnerable points in communication on both sides. So let's talk about vulnerabilities from the buyer being the district, and let's talk about vulnerabilities from the vendor side of it. I think we have, uh, to my earlier point, made incredible strides in our understanding of what the needs are on the vendor side, both of the the end user, the parents, the tech specialist at a given school to implement because um, some of those early days were really rough. I mean, you were talking <laughs> about just trying to teach someone how to turn on an iPad in a training. Hey, sir. We, we've come a long way and yes, lived for a decade. Um, but I still would imagine there are still some weak sort of weak spots in the fabric um, that we are that we are binding together here in ways in which we can educate. And one area that I would guess, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong from the vendor side, is there's still a lack of knowledge in understanding funding streams. Both right. at the state 
and local levels and understand then the overlap of that, which is the timing and the outlay. Because, and why I think that's so critical is because you have incredible innovators that are starting companies. They're seeking investment from the investment community, which we haven't talked about, the funding community. But we're, we're talking about building a runway so that you can be viable. So that when you go to a prospective district, they say, well, you're gonna be around in two years. Yeah. That, was, that was some shaky ground a decade ago, those conversations, right? You kind of had to just, you had to fake it till you made it. Um, <laughs> but I think some of that came because there was a lack of knowledge in how districts are funded, um, yeah. what the thresholds are. And I'm wondering if you still see that as a, a point of opportunity to educate prospective clients and just those in the business side of delivering solutions to schools across the country. Absolutely. I think that's a perfect point because, you know, there's major com complexities related to how school districts are funded and not only from a local perspective, but what we generate from a, you know, from a local perspective through property taxes, but what we get from the Department of Education's and then what we get from a federal level. And there's so many different pockets and categoricals that startup companies or current companies need to really have do their homework to understand because these are dollars that make sense and could connect and align perfectly with their solution, whether it be through Title I funding for schools that have a historical underperforming students that they can go out and use and, and not use general fund dollars, whether it be use Title II for professional development, Title IV, or being able to look at uh, IDA funding for ongoing services for students with disabilities and, and then looking at additional grant funding and also looking at, you know, ESSER that we have one calendar year to do. I'm telling everyone who's listening, one calendar year left remaining for ESSER funds. So now, and, and there's many flexibilities for that, but you know, that's used for curriculum, that's used for, uh, you know, mental health services, that's used for uh, looking at uh, curriculum and instruction. So, Understanding these funding sources and how you know they are approved through the approval process, whether it be approval through the Department of Education, whether it be approval by the local board, all has to be realized. And those pots of money, um, it's you know that it's out there as transparent for any of any business to identify. But knowing the nuances about approval processes, how to get it through the RFP process, how to get that approval through the finish line, how to present. All that makes sense for a, a new company to be able to bring uh, to have knowledge to grow stronger and, and longer legs throughout their uh, their scope, whether it be Florida or throughout the nation. And sit in that seat, you know, for many many years, uh, you know, I will be able to bring that initiative and and that kind of insight to new companies or existing companies. Just allow them to be more intentional about what they're trying to accomplish as they start that interaction. And that speaks to Addison, what I would then, if I were sort of connecting to the vulnerability question around districts, and I think ESSER funding is a fantastic example of that, because I, I'm wondering, uh, maybe may a little soapbox here, but I'm wondering if the challenges we have in our political environment sort of, sort of bleed over into different sectors of our lives, meaning, in essence, we can't admit that we don't know something if we're in a position of leadership. And I can't tell you the number of conversations on the record and off the record with superintendents that either felt very comfortable in understanding ESSER funding and where it could be applied, and those that seem to have absolutely no clue, which, fine, but I'm wondering if the, one of the vulnerabilities in the superintendency is that because we have become so divisive as a culture, yes, and we are sort of narrowing in on the superintendent as our feardly, you know, <laughs> fearsome leader, maybe, uh, is that many of them feel right or wrongly that they cannot not know or they cannot make what would be perceived as a mistake, especially in the funding discussion. And that feels like a 
an incredible vulnerability and speaks maybe to an earlier part of our discussion, which was around the professional development of those in a superintendency. It's almost like you need a capologist, like a sports team to say, wait a minute, are we hitting a hard cap? Can we spend here? Do we have the mid-level exception? I mean, it's getting incredibly diverse um, and complicated beyond just, do we have discretionary funds at the building level to pay someone to come in and provide PD last second, right? Yeah. If, if only those were the only discussions, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so it's talk a, a little a, bit about that, that component, which yeah. is superintendents having to sort of bone up on their, really their sure. financial literacy. Yeah. And can they afford to say, we don't know, we are struggling. Yeah. We're putting together a committee to understand where ESSER can and cannot go. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, it is a role and responsibility of the superintendent to know every facet of the financial outlook of a school district. It is their role and responsibility to unpack every dollar and every cent. If you want to find out what a school district's priorities are, you follow the money. And when you look at it, and, and I go back to me when, you know, in, in March of, of 2020, when I transitioned to Hillsborough County, you know, when I identified the $150 million in debt, it was because of grant funded money. It was $100 million that was given that it was soft money that they hired people with. And then when that money exhausted, they just kept those individuals uh, on board and hiring them with the district general fund money, which is they were expending more than they generated. And no one can run the business that way. You can't go to Publix with $150 worth of groceries with a $100 bill. It's never going to work out. So when you look at ESSER, you've got to understand that this is one-time money, and it's used to be able to accelerate learning, to address achievement gaps, and to be able to really you know, lift the educational experiences for learners and for teachers and for communities along the way. So superintendents must understand every facet of that funding to make informed decisions because now, you know, right now, before I left, we were in the process of doing an audit of ESSER funding because we got $750 million of federal dollars to determine what we need to, you know, the effectiveness of every initiative that we launched. And we were the first in the, in the nation to launch an ESSER dashboard to be a you know, public facing about how we use dollars and where those dollars went to be able to determine what we need to continue and use uh, with other funding sources in the district once ESSER money went away. You know, we, we did a lot of our money invested in curriculum and when that will last, you know, and also with technology and infrastructure, not, not software, but infrastructure that will last for a couple of years, five years and um, being very intentional about that process. So understanding ESSER money is a must. And what we did in Hillsborough County, we put together somewhat of a shark tank, uh, you know, panel where individuals in every one of our verticals that wanted to come and spend extra money they had to come present to our to our shark tank to identify how it aligned to our strategic plan what what the existing cost was going to be how it was going to make organizational expected outcomes and have organizational impact and what funding source could we use once this money was exhausted and Esther was done in 2024 as we transitioned out and, uh, you know, and we had to have a rating system and not everyone got approved and that's the way to do it. And now doing audits of that money and to look at the organizational impact is a must because, you know what, we owe it to taxpayers. We owe it to everyone that, you know, to our federal government who's given it to us. And we owe it to our children to determine what we need to duplicate and what we need to selectively abandon as we move forward. So the option of, of not saying they don't know or they need to learn, those 
it's a now it's it's the firearm is pulled today you need to understand every facet of it and then we talk about professional learning professional development there's not a lot of entities out there that are there to train and build the capacity of superintendents this is why you know you got the council great city schools you got chiefs for change but other entities you know you have some one-offs but you know it doesn't exist and many superintendents are being put in that role they just don't have the support mechanisms and they're they're put in a position that you know what it's either survive or, or not and um you know we've got to feel we got to put systems in place to wrap our arms around leaders especially creating a farm system who are ready to lead and be able to do the right thing for children every single day and and people can say that you know what it's it's no longer showing up and focusing on the classroom, but this is being politically savvy, being financial savvy, understanding culture wars, wars, understanding the social wars, understanding injustices, and be very sensitive about what we can do. Because while we had a thousand vacancies in Hillsborough County, imagine the vacancies across this nation because openly teaching is not a sexy job anymore. And we've got to get to a point where we prioritize it, not only through a financial perspective, but also through also through a cultural perspective and give them a sense of care and support every day. It does feel like we're at a, we're at a pivotal juncture in <laughs> understanding in what we value and how we value education, K-20. That's um, right. Your feeder system, you know, for the higher ed and higher ed's looking to K-12 to really create the next generation, which impacts, you know, uh, college workforce development. Uh, it's a very pivotal point where we need people like you that can bring the expertise and I would imagine have some hard discussions and that's part of it, right? Because sometimes it's beneficial to give a client or a vendor pivotal information that doesn't allow them to spend more money trying to develop or cultivate a relationship with a district that just is not prepared or ready to buy. And, and the timing is just off. You can you know, that's incredibly important. Sometimes it's the money we don't spend. It can be the most valuable. Um, Let's close with this. So you're you're a few days in now to to your new post, and I'm sure it's nice that your email has sort of calmed down a bit. (laughs) Are you going to, are you giving yourself a chance to, uh, I guess, to decompress uh, as you look onto this next adventure? And and really, what's, what's the change been like for your family in this decision? I'm sure this was not just an Addison Davis decision. Yes, sir. First and foremost, you know, my my family, my wife, Natalie, and my two daughters, Madison and Caitlin, they're, they're so instrumental in, in this decision making. And, and one of the things we wanted to do was find an organization, a firm that puts family first. And I couldn't say more about Stratagos Group and Adam Geary and, and, you know, and Todd Lamb and Doug. And you look at Jim Horn and Tara and Vance and the list continues, Johnny and Tom Luna. You know, these individuals openly understand the value and the core values at the dinner table. And for us, it, it was so refreshing. It's a, it's a no-brainer. And, and, I, and through my onboarding process, not only was my, my wife engaged, and we're so thankful for that process, but to see the sophistication and the vision that, that Adam and the team brings, it's, it's so refreshing. And, you know, I want to be a part of individuals that, that understand that families first, but also have that war to really go into governmental agencies and help them create a lift experience. So, you know, for me, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been exciting this first week. I'll start, you know, week two next week. And you know what, we've been sprinting, uh, you know, we, I wish I could decompress, but I, but when you're running, you know, the 20, the seven largest school districts in the nation, you just get into this rhythm. And uh, you know, I think the strategist group and the partners are feeling that rhythm that I have and that cadence that I have, and I'm going to try to slow it down, but, 
I don't think there's that's in that's in me at all. But um, it's been so rewarding, so refreshing, and you know, to, to find minds that that kind of match and mirror mine and and some better. It's just it's just exciting to be able to learn a new journey, a new chapter of my life to, to figure out how I can best help this firm, this company continue their great stride. And, and by far, when, when I was in this engagement process with, with other vendors and other agencies, this is the top, man, this is top shelf, next level indicators. And um, I owe this to the management partner and all the partners in this entity and all the support staff as well, because they've been first round draft picks as, as in there my first week. Well, I, I can say for myself as a former partner and, and yes, transparency being a, a special advisor to Strategus that what you've said is exactly true in my experience as well. So I think that you're a welcome addition to the family because I know it is definitely uh, a family and one that is incredibly thoughtful about the people that they bring on and the people that are a part of the ecosystem in general to include uh, clients and collaborative partners. So I think they're lucky and I think you're lucky as well, which is always a nice thing to see. And I'm excited to see how you're going to impact and educate on both sides of the table, which will just in the end, help the younger Addison Davis class, <laughs> classroom teacher, right? In supporting the growth and development of our young people very during very turbulent, I think, and challenging times. So we need really good people Seems like you're a really good guy. I look forward to meeting you in person. We want to thank Addison Davis, the newest equity partner at Strategus Group and former superintendent at Hillsborough County Public Schools. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.